Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curve, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curve. Hello there, it's six o'clock, I'm Michelle Jubery and this is Jubes and Co, the show where we'll get into some of the things that have got you talking today. Now, brace yourself because I reckon you're going to be hearing this next sentence quite a bit over the next couple of weeks, months, God only knows how long. Benefits to bricks. This is Boris Johnson's latest ambition when it comes to helping you get onto the housing ladder. It's going to be all about benefits contributing or being taken into account, should I say, when it comes to mortgage payments, what do you think to this? Good idea or not? Or is it just kind of tinkering around the edges when what we really need is a much more ambitious plan to help people, if you want to, get onto the housing ladder? And more strikes. What do you think to this? Do you support strike action? Should we all be able to down tools if we basically want more money, better terms, better conditions? Or should we have conditions attached to this? For example, what do you stand? Uh, where do you stand when it comes to things like skeleton services? Should uh, organisations such as transport, etc., be forced to have them so that not everybody is brought to their knees? And the social mobility SAR, which I absolutely love the fact that there is a SAR for this. There's a SAR for everything these days, isn't there? Well, she says that if you're from a poor background... Uh, instead of having massive lofty ambitions to go to, say, Oxford or Cambridge, start small. Smaller steps are the key to changing your life. But isn't that obvious? And by the way, uh, what does even social mobility mean these days? And is it just pushing everybody upwards and upwards and upwards? Is that going to make us all happy? Um, thank you very much for that. Sorry, we were just deep in conversation there because you might have noticed there was the story then about the cigarettes and the smoking. And one of my panel, I won't tell you which one, um, the response was, well, where does all the fun behind the bike sheds go now if people are not smoking? When I introduced my panel in a second, I'll leave you to imagine which one commented that. Joining me is Victoria Borwick, who's the former Deputy Mayor of London to Boris Johnson, journalist Benedict Spence and Ellie Mayo Hagen, Director of the Centre for Labour and Social Studies. Good evening to you three. You're very welcome. And you know the drill on Jubes and Co by now, don't you? It's not just about us here. It's about you at home. What's on your mind tonight? What do you think um, to the stories that we're going to be discussing or even that you've just heard in the headlines there or anything else, quite frankly, that you're at home talking about. Get in touch with me, gbviews at gbnews.uk. You can tweet me at gbnews or at Michelle Jubes. Uh, if you haven't already, don't forget, you can subscribe to us on YouTube. You can download our app. Uh, you can, what else? Social media, we're everywhere. We've got uh, the radio, DAB+. Plus. Uh, so wherever you are watching or listening tonight, you are very welcome indeed. Now, benefits to bricks, that's the new uh, idea, slogan, phrase, whatever you want to call it, from the Prime Minister today, which is all about allowing people to use their housing benefit to buy their council house at a discount. The scheme would also be extended to people renting from housing associations. I have to say, though, I'll open this one up to you, Ellie, first. 
the kind of conversation about housing, we go around and around and around in circles, don't we? We seem to have this conversation all the time and there are frequently kind of policies uh, announced that possibly, some might say, are tinkering around the edges. Uh, is this the policy that you've had today that you sit there and think, yes, this is cracked it. This is going to make sure that everyone can get on the housing ladder if they want to? No, I think it's a, I think it's a disaster because... Between the time that Right to Buy was first introduced by Margaret Thatcher and today, house prices have gone up by a thousand percent. So it's clearly not helping people um, get on the property ladder. You know, I'm somebody that can't afford to buy a house, and I'm a I like I'm a director of an organisation, and I can't afford to buy a house on my salary. It's a it's a crazy state of events. And, Is you that know, London or outside? In London, but also outside now as well. You know, I come from North Wales and house prices are going up by 20% every year where I come from. So, you know, families there are rapidly getting priced out of um, the housing market um, because it's all going to second homes now um, in that particular part of the country. And, you know, the other thing that I think is really striking about right to buy is that four in 10 right to buy properties are now owned by private landlords so actually, they're not helping people get on the housing market. They're just helping landlords buy houses cheaply that they rent out to people at often extortionate rates. So I don't think that it's a good policy. I actually think that this is because Boris Johnson's had such a difficult week. I think, you know, because he's had this no co- vote of no confidence that didn't, that he, he, you know, the party does have confidence in him, but it didn't go very well, you know. And I think now he's trying to sort of appeal to his party base and show that he can be pulling a rabbit out of a hat, if you like. Um, and I think he's chosen a, a pretty disastrous way to do that. And I think it'll be people, especially young people, that will suffer if this policy... But let me just ahead. ask you this, though, because you just said then that some of these houses, I think you said four in ten or whatever, they're owned now by private landlords. So what you're saying is that this scheme is basically going to help private landlords get more and more houses... But it's not, is it? This scheme is going to help individuals buy their home. If those individuals then choose to sell that house on to a private <coughs> landlord, that's not the government's fault. The government has said that this policy will help uh, pe- more people get on the property ladder. And what I'm saying is when actually what's happening is nearly half of those properties are being sold to, to landlords who then charge such extortionate rates that people can't save for a deposit then that clearly doesn't help. It might help those individuals who want to buy their council housing. But, you know, as you mentioned before, we have a serious housing crisis in this country and this will definitely make it worse and not better. And I think actually having right to buy in the first place has actually contributed to the situation where we are now. It's like trying to put out fire with more fire. Victoria, do you agree with what you're hearing? Well, no, because I think it's a really good aspirational policy, but it must be alongside renewal and rebuilding. We should be building lifetime homes. We should be looking at the multi-family dwellings. We should be looking at what homes we need now for people who actually live in. You know, many people live in, uh, you know, multi-generational homes. People want to live together. We've got to build homes and have homes and make sure that we keep up what is needed desperately is more homes across the country. Yes, and the councils have got to go on having uh, stock available for social rented. I mean, what is there, over a million people on housing lists across London? And yes, my, my children are in the basis of trying to rent houses across London. People are outbidding each they other. Are, yeah. So stock is the real issue, but that doesn't mean you should stop. 
letting people have that opportunity to buy because actually that means they no longer need to be feeding the pockets of those social landlords you were fe- you were talking about. I think it's a really good policy. It's aspirational. It gives people the opportunity of taking control of their lives. So I think the policy is right, but it must be accompanied by investment and renewal and replacement and the opportunity of building the right homes for people to live in for families. Benedict, where do you stand? Uh, I think we need to be far more aggressive when it comes to the housing situation in this country. And this is where I get a little bit rabid and a little bit militant. Um, Actually, I think we need to think of it less in terms of opportunities for investment and value and much more in terms of people in this house need to have a stake in society and they also need the right to put a roof over their heads. I think there need to be limits placed on how many properties landlords can own uh, going forward and what they currently own to incentivise them sell them off. I think that people who sell houses to first-time buyers should be given tax breaks and incentives. I think that people who look to sell their houses to landlords should be taxed disproportionately. I think actually it's important that we do recognise we aren't building enough houses in general, be they social housing, be they private housing, because actually the majority of people who are struggling with housing and the ability to get on the property ladder at the moment are not people living in social housing. It's the sort of the aspirational middle class who are underpaid in proportion to the rate at which house prices are going up. It is people like uh, Ellie, people who once upon a time would have long been on the property ladder and be able to start families and start look after themselves and they can't do that anymore. And I think the Conservative Party needs to recognise it faces an existential issue right now. It exists effectively to safeguard uh, the interests of uh, people who are using properties to uh, fund themselves in later life, essentially as pensionable assets. That's not what this should be about at all. It's about creating stakeholders in society. That means getting younger people on the property ladder, taking them out of the precariousness of being in rented accommodation and onto the property-owning ladder. Until they sort that, actually, I don't see the Conservative Party long-term having a future in this country. I think that the population will shift ever further to the left as they become uh, you know, perpetual renters. And that is something that I understand in the short term. A lot of Tory donors, a lot of Tory members are really keen on the idea of you know, being landlords and having that opportunity and house prices going up. Long term, it's going to be a disaster for this country. And any true Conservative needs to recognise this will require radical action in the short term to fix long term. Well, let me read a couple of um, uh, emails, shall I say, from the viewers because so many emails are flying in about this. So Graham says, Michelle... Am I living in a parallel universe now? You can never go to work a day in your life. You can smoke, drink, have Netflix, a mobile phone, have all your bill pays paid, and now the taxpayer will buy you a house. Janice says, why on earth should the taxpayers be buying people homes? Um, I have to say, this sentiment is coming through. Max says, this is ludicrous. My parents were allowed a right to buy, but they worked every day of their lives. We've just bought our house. We've foregone holidays for 10 years, etc., etc." Karen says, what a great message the government's sending out. Don't go to work, live on benefits, and the taxpayers will buy you a house. I will never vote Conservative again. Ellie, I have to say, I mean, that's just a few I can read out. There are streams of this coming in, and the sentiment is, if... You work and you compromise and you sacrifice and you save up all the time and you manage to buy a little perky house somewhere, probably outside of where you'd like to be, but it's all you can afford. Why then is the government saying if you're on benefits, and I do appreciate, by the way, that people that also work do have benefits as well, but the sentiment that I'm receiving from the viewers at the moment is why should people on benefits be given taxpayer assistance to buy an asset when someone who's working multiple jobs or whatever is not and has to buy their own property. What do you say back to that? Well, I think the first thing to say is that most people who are on benefits are already in working households. People earn their poverty in this country because work doesn't pay enough. So I think that's the first thing to say. 
Um, the second thing um, in response to that is, you know, speaking as somebody, you know, who, who as, as Benedict said, is, is the group that's sort of it, a member of the group that's struggling to get on the property ladder and is in the private rented sector and did actually have to enter into a bidding mm. war with someone so that I could, or uh, some people, mm. so that I could um, live in my current flat. Um, I don't want to be pitted against people working in social, living, sorry, in social housing um, I think the problem here is that we have not built enough council housing. Mm. And I want to be clear as well, because we have some conservatives on the panel, that this is not a party political mm. issue. This is um, both parties have been absolutely terrible at this. And in fact, um, only 5% of the council houses that have been sold off under right to buy have been replaced. Mm. That's not just the Conservative Party. Mm. It was also the Labour Party. But, you know, that needs to change. And I also agree with what Ben said, that actually you can see, so I do a lot of public attitudes research with class, my think tank, and you can see that conservative voters tend to be retirees, homeowning retirees. And so it might suit that group of people for now to have rising house prices because that's an asset that they've got that will increase over time. But unless you actually change the housing market so that young people do have a stake in it, I do think they are actually just creating quite a lot of Labour voters in the long term. I mean, and I'm not a Conservative, so I'm kind of fine with that. But I think the party should have a bit of a long, longer term plan, you know, to, to sort of deal with that. And I think that involves tackling the housing crisis at its root, really, and not tinkering around the edges. Well, Jan, just to clarify, Janet said, Michelle, Boris, apparently in his uh, speech today, said it would be only those in work and on benefits that would um, basically get the benefit of this scheme. Um, do you worry that the Conservatives are potentially uh, de-incentivising people from working if you're having this? Because I can see it thick and fast in my inbox now that rightly or wrongly, there's a sentiment coming through of, hang on a second, how come I work multiple jobs and I kind of swim, uh, save, etc. And if you're on benefits, you're getting all of this additional help. Do you feel that that's the kind of, whether it's justified or not, the perception is there, that it's almost a de-incentive to work? Well, I think we have to remember... <clears throat> Sorry, it's another glass of water. Yes, um, hang on. If any of my lovely production staff are listening, we're going to get to you some water. Um, what well, I was going to say, of course, this is an extension of the right to buy scheme. So, of course, there is already the right to buy. The opportunity here is that those who live in housing associations can also use what is currently their, their, mortgage, their, their, their rental money or their benefit money towards the cost of, of contributing. They're not going to suddenly buy a house. It's going to be putting the money towards over, over, over a period of years. But there's no point doing that and taking that house off the market unless we have a renewal and a rebuild and are looking at lifetime homes and, you know, other homes that are needed. Because exactly, as was said earlier, we haven't got enough homes. And the big thing is actually we need to build more homes so that everybody has that opportunity of coming off the housing list and feeling they've got somewhere to live. I mean, I'm a school governor and we have teachers who are sofa surfing because they cannot get a flat to either rent or buy. I certainly welcome this as a conservative initiative to help people to have a, uh, you know, a roof over their heads. And I think it's important to support that but it must be part of an overall package. All right, I'm going to rest your voice whilst we're waiting on the water and ask you, Benedict, what do you think to that sentiment that's coming through on the inbox, which is very much that people are saying, hang on a second, I've grafted, I've bought my house at full price, 
why should uh, a discount be applied, basically, to someone just because they're on benefits? Well, I'm grafting, I'm working, and I'm trying to buy a house at any kind of price. And I can't manage it, and Ellie can't manage it, and actually a lot of people who are working full-time can't manage it. But this isn't about people who, you know, in that sort of caricatured way, uh, sort of sit on the sofa watching TV all day and aren't in work and are getting benefits. This is about people who are getting benefits on top of the fact that they're working. So it's not really a question of they're people that aren't pulling their weight. They're trying their very best, but perhaps they just aren't the job opportunities where they currently live, and they don't necessarily have the capacity to move to somewhere else uh, you know, where, where there are jobs. This is about actually giving a helping hand uh, in a society where the, the, the price of houses, because it has been inflated, um, is outstripping that of wages. And actually, it's very difficult to bridge that gap. But I would disagree, actually, with what Ellie says, which is that, that this isn't a party, politi- party political issue. Perhaps I'm slightly biased because I have a slight more bent to the Conservative Party. For me, this very much is a party political issue. The Conservative Party isn't about conserving wealth, or it shouldn't be about conserving wealth. It should be about conserving important key aspects of this society. And as we've just touched upon, it is pushing a generation of younger people in the exact opposite direction to what it should want to go, in the interest, the short-term interests, of a few people who are currently voting for it, which, this might sound incredibly harsh, they're not going to be here in sort of 30, 40 years' time. Those people aren't going to be voting Conservative because they're going to be dead. The next generation of people that come through will not be voting Conservative because the Conservative Party won't have done anything for them. Ergo, yes, this is a party political issue. The Conservative Party have been in power for 10 years and have steadfastly refused to solve this issue in any particular way. And actually, even though Boris Johnson is in a real mess at the moment, I don't think you'd necessarily put too much money on Labour winning the next general election. There's an outside chance the Tories will be in power uh, in a few years' time. Uh, go Again, it is a party political issue because they're still going to be the ones that have to deal with it. Well, do you know what I find fascinating, making it about politics just for a second? I think it's fair to say... Um, that there's a difference of political persuasions on this panel. And I would say that it's quite a vast traditional difference of political persuasion. But yet, what I found fascinating when kind of thinking through these topics and, and hearing your thoughts, etc., is there is quite a lot of agreement from people that would be typically, if you were to write down typically, I don't know, right is this and left is that and all the rest of it, you would be polar opposites. But then it is almost uniting and, and kind of crossing that political divide. And is that kind of a, uh, when I mentioned that to you, you said mm. something quite interesting, didn't you, about in terms of um, the difference in the parties these days and conservative, etc. What was your thoughts on that? Uh, what, that, that, that this is going in a certain direction politically and that the Conservative parties are going to lose out uh, in, in the long term as a result? Yeah, I... Yes, it's, uh, I mean, honestly, I, if you're a Labour Party supporter, if you're being sort of very politically savvy about this, you should be kind of a bit happy about it because it does mean that long term you will have a much larger electoral base to, to draw upon than you would otherwise. But I suppose if you get into politics because you want to help people, which most people in the Labour Party do, uh, it should appall you that actually the people that used to be the ones that could sort of help themselves are no longer able to help themselves because they're being locked out, because house prices are going up. You know, it, it does exasperate me, but it should show you that, as you say, you've got three different people of you know, quite different political persuasions across the spectrum. And we all agree on this one point. That actually shows you, A, quite how large the issue is, and B, how quite spectacularly both major parties, and not just both major parties, because the Greens and the Liberal Democrats at local level when it comes to planning permission are awful in terms of giving planning permission. It's across the political political spectrum, sorry. There just isn't the will to do anything serious about it, and it will lead to serious demographic issues down the line. And that is what is really infuriating for me, as you can probably tell, is that I can see the Conservative Party just heading headfirst into an absolute electoral disaster from which it will really struggle uh, to ever sort of emerge from. 
albeit 10 years down the line. So clearly Boris Johnson probably doesn't care about that sort of thing. But, but sure. for the rest of us who are in our 30s, we do kind of care about that. But surely where we all agree is actually we desperately need more housing. We need housing stock for the council so that people can have socially rented housing. And then we must have an opportunity for other housing for people that may or may not buy it through any benefit system or mortgage system. or Because people want that right to have a, you know, their own sort of self-esteem. People want the aspirations. As everyone said, people want to feel that they own the house where they live, as Boris was talking about being able to paint the door the colour you want, or being able to have a dog or a pet. All those things are the right aspirations and absolutely conservative values, but none of them are going to happen because of house prices going up, because we're not building enough homes. But it's no point just building up, you know, tiny little rabbit hutches that nobody wants. They've got to be homes that people want to live in that reflect modern-day values and modern-day aspirations. Victoria, uh, might I just ask quickly, are yes. you a landlord? No. Chance? You're definitely not a landlord. I mean, I you really don't even own but I think own that's the key no. thing here, is that you've got three people on the panel who don't own their own houses. What I'd quite like to hear a little bit more from, especially from politicians, because most of them do own second houses, is actually what their opinion is as landlords, as people who are on the property ladder in terms of their homes and actually are the ones creating the, the, the shortage because they own second hounds and in some cases many more and also aren't actually contributing to but more hounds being built. But then I suspect that actually what you'd do is you'd get pushback from the government who have said that they actually, they've created a lot of policies to try and make it harder for landlords or to try and deter landlords. I think as well you're seeing a lot of councils, was it, uh, is it Cornwall? And Wales, I think even Wales are trying to introduce a policy now in Wales. I'm looking at you because I know you mentioned Wales. <laughs> of Wales. I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure that I'm right, that in Wales and I know Cornwall, they're trying to create policies now that make it very, very difficult for second homeowners to go into those towns, cities, villages, wherever it is, to try and stop people from doing that. Ben has emailed in and said, this is simple. We should prevent loans for second homes. Well, you actually say second-hand homes, but I think you mean second <laughs> homes. Uh, ben says we should uh, make second uh, homeowners pay with cash only. Uh, Kenny, you're doing all right for yourself, Kenny. He says, Michelle, we bought our house under Maggie's right to buy. Get this, everyone. Uh, they paid £27,500 for their house back in the early 90s. What do you think it's worth now? If half, you can see it... Half a million. No, yes. I don't know what it is. Half a million all right. is what I'm I'm guessing it depends million. where in the country. Yes, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Kenny, you didn't say where in the country. Um, I'll give you all the answer. He paid £27,500 for his house back in the early it 90s. It's now worth £400,000. He says it's the best thing we ever did yeah. as our daughter now has a nice legacy <laughs> when we pot. are no yeah. longer here. Bernard says, well, why can't councils just build prefab houses like they did after the war uh, to help alleviate the housing problem? And I have to say, Bernard, uh, I think that there are some plans, actually, to look at what does construction look like in this country? Does it have to be traditional bricks and mortar? Are there more kind of sophisticated, um, you know, better ways of kind of getting houses up quicker, cheaper, et cetera, et cetera? Um, Derek says, Michelle, the members of parliament get their second and third homes paid for by the taxpayer. Why should uh, poorer people not be treated the same way? Mark says, Michelle, why don't you understand? People's wages are not enough and that's why they have benefits to top their wages up. 
Mark, I do understand that. I'm simply reading out the sentiment that is coming through thick and fast in my inbox. I can tell you, my inbox, ladies and gentlemen, is on fire. Tell me, what do you think to this topic? Should the government be extending uh, the right to buy to people on benefits, having benefits uh, contribute towards their mortgage costs? One thing we haven't touched on, I'm going to go to a break in a second, but I'll leave you all to ponder this. Um, it's about affordability. It's all well and good that we've currently got a base rate that is, you know, so, so small. My worry in a lot of this, by the way, is that I uh, worry that we're perhaps heading for a recession. I worry that we're heading for quite high interest rates. They are not high at the moment. If you look back to the 70s, for example, and where they were then, and it's all well and good putting people on the housing market at today's values, today's interest rates, etc., today's affordability. Um, but I personally worry that we're perhaps heading for a bit of a storm. Get in touch. Let me know your thoughts. When we come back, we'll be talking about social mobility. The social mobility SAR, I love that word. I think it's a SAR for absolutely everything nowadays. Except Russia. There? Except Russia. Um, yeah, I want to be a SAR for something. Um, God only knows what. But um, yes, a SAR. We'll all appoint ourselves SARs of something on this panel. Um, but what do you think to this? What does social mobility even mean to you? Uh, she's saying that instead of having lofty ambitions to go to Oxford or Cambridge or wherever, it's all about taking small steps to better yourself if you want to achieve success. What is success anyway? We'll have all that and more after the break. Coming up on The Mark Stein Show, reaching a milestone, the vaccine injured and bereaved secure the right to have their campaign calling for a public inquiry into vaccine safety considered by the government. Radio presenter Jules Serkin, who has been left injured, will be asking whether ministers will finally take the issue seriously. Leilani Dowding is back to discuss whether the shutdown of society is the reason behind a wave of crime, mass shootings and riots. Plus, royal historian Hugo Vickers on the Queen's surge in popularity. But is it the same story for Prince Charles? All that and more on The Mark Stein Show tonight from 8 o'clock. Hello there. Welcome back to Jubes and Co. with me, Michelle Jubery. Uh, keeping me company tonight, we've got Victoria Borwick, who's the former de- deputy mayor of... You, yeah, former deputy mayor of London. I was reading that thinking, really? But yes, you are indeed. I don't know why I doubted myself. I doubted you then for a nanosecond. I was thinking, is that true? But yes. Um, yes, former deputy mayor there to Boris Johnson, journalist Benedict Spence and Ellie Mayo Hagen, who's the director of the Centre for Labour and Social Studies. We just carried on that conversation, by the way, in the break about property prices, etc. And Ben, you had a good idea, didn't you? How about restricting the amount of foreign buyers uh, into property in this country, particularly in and around London, but probably bigger cities as well, like um, you've got places like Manchester. I imagine it goes on there as well. This is where I get to indulge my right-wing xenophobia and go, yes, I can do something about foreigners. I think, you know, wealthy investments that come from abroad, we do see this in London a lot. You see great big tower blocks going up. And uh, as Victoria was saying, you you see it at night, don't you? These great big tower blocks and all the lights are off because there's nobody inside because they've been bought up as investments by overseas uh, speculators. And they do that because they know that the prices of the buildings and the land is going to go up disproportionately to anything else. And there is one thing, I think, right there that you could do, put a ban on that sort of thing happening. If you did that in conjunction with more domestic landlords from buying up all of those properties and renting them out, then there's quite a lot of housing stock there potentially for people to take 
But I don't think that's going to happen because that's not actually in the interests of, uh, of the political classes in we this country. We have found a topic that you are very passionate <laughs> very about. Very angry about, yeah. Yes, I can tell. I can tell. Somebody give me a house. <laughs> yeah. Charles has said, Michelle, we do not, you've put it in capitals as well for extra emphasis there, we do not have a housing crisis. What he's saying is basically we have a population crisis, an ever-increasing <laughs> population, uh, and that's why. You may laugh. No, Benedict, you may laugh. I actually uh, think Charles has got a point, actually. So what's the solution to a population crisis? Well, he's not... But is there a solution to a population crisis? That sounds a bit Hunger Games. Yes, I'm not sure I like where that's going. Yes, but I guess, ultimately, Charles's point, and I think it's a fine point, Charles, I'll stick up for you. I think it's a good point you made there. But um, I don't think it's any different from saying you have a housing supply shortage. They're the same thing. Mm-hmm. You've got too many people and not so enough houses. The population bit is a, thing is a bit more sinister. Though. Yes, I agree. What's sinister about that? Too many Welsh people, that's the problem. Yeah. <laughs> what's, <laughs> what's sinister about what Charles is saying? I well, think just like if, if you're saying there's a population crisis. Well, how, it's Malthusian is the thing, yeah, isn't how it? How do you it's, reduce the population? Yeah. And there's been attempts to do that in countries around the world that have ended pretty horribly. Ukraine is an example. Yeah, China... I just think I just think that that's just a bit reductive. It's saying that human beings are the problem, and actually, human beings are very often the solution to most issues, even if they're solution, uh, issues that have been caused by human beings. There, if there's a will, there's a way. And ultimately, I think we're all agreement to some degree on this panel: building more houses, whichever way you want to frame it, population issue, housing supply issue, that would solve that issue. Right. Should we uh, stop talking about houses? Please. Let me know if you've got any strong views on that that you want uh, me to read out before the end of the show. You can reach me on email, gbviews at gbnews.uk. Let's talk social mobility, uh, shall we? By the way, there's a bit of a link here, though, isn't there? Because I imagine in terms of home ownership, etc., that is probably how some people get a step up on life. I've just told you about Kenny there that bought his house for about 27 grand, and it's now worth just shy of half a million. If that's not social mobility, I don't know what is. But then I say that, Victoria, as though I'm somehow assuming that social mobility is all about your money, the money that you've got in your pocket or the size of your house. The reason we're talking about this, by the way, uh, is the head of the Social Mobility Commission says that there needs to be a radical rethink uh, when it comes to social mobility. What she's also going on to say is that poor people shouldn't be aiming for the dizzy heights of Oxford and Cambridge University and instead should be concentrating on taking smaller steps up the social mobility ladder. What do you think to this, Victoria? Well, I think, once again, you're absolutely right to highlight the link. It's aspiration, it's ambition, it's giving our children in our school that ambition to succeed. It's supporting all children to succeed. But what Not does just succeed to say, mean? Well, succeed doesn't mean that one of your class goes to Oxford. I mean, I don't go, didn't go to Oxford. I don't know the rest of us. But are we all reasonably happy after the housing discussion? I'm not so sure. Yeah, no. <laughs> I think it's not. <laughs> but uh, joking aside, I think the point is it's giving people that confidence because being in employment helps people's self-confidence, helps people's self-esteem, helps people... You know, what what does happiness mean? I think it is successful. So actually, I think this is a really good way of highlighting that it shouldn't just be head saying, OK, I've got one pupil into some very smart university. What this is all about is giving all the pupils the opportunity to succeed. So I absolutely concur with what Catherine Bubble Singh said. And I think it's really right that we should be talking about everybody having opportunity 
This is about opportunity for all, not opportunity for just that top stream. And Ellie, I mean, I imagine this is a topic as well that's close to your heart in terms of social mobility. And, you know, I always ask, does biography equal destiny? So if this is your story, this is your background, this is kind of where you're from and what you're born into, does that automatically mean that that is where you're going to end up? Does it matter? If you replicate your background, should we be constantly striving for what some would describe as better or different? What's your views on all this? Well, I mean, the statistics show that if you're born um, working class, you you probably will stay working class. That's what happens to to most people. And I I suppose, um, and similarly, if you're born middle class, you will stay middle class. Like, and I think... This is one of the things that I query about the whole idea of social mobility is that no one is saying that the sort of lazy children of judges or top heart surgeons should kind of go down the social ladder. You know, like that's we sort of accept that those people will probably sort of find their way in a cushy job. You know, so it's actually only social mobility one way. And it has always been about a few talented working class people kind of entering the middle class. And what I found odd reading um, what, um, I've forgotten her name. Catherine Babelsing. Catherine Babelsing was saying is, um, is that we're in the middle of the worst cost of living crisis um, possibly ever um, at the moment. And what that means is that the children in this country are going hungry. Um, there's children going to school with chillblains because their parents can't afford to heat the house. Um, We have a quarter of a million homeless children in this country. And I found it just strange that someone who is a headmistress and who talks about, you know, uh, children being able to succeed and given the best chance in life, that she didn't even mention this, like, catastrophe that's hitting families in this country at the moment, which to me seems a much more important thing to talk about and a much bigger factor than, you know, aiming to, to go to Oxford or to sort of get a job in a, as a teacher or, or whatever, you know, like whatever she was saying. I'm still, I'm looking at my inbox, by the way. I'm getting distracted by what, what some of mm-hmm. you are saying. Bruce, as she said, Michelle, we bought our house in 1992 for 115000 and now we've just sold it. How much do you think for? It's going to make me hate Bruce, so I don't want to know. <laughs> well, I want to know. Right. You'll hate him even more when I read oh, the end sentence of Bruce's email. Half a million? No, more. <laughs> 750,000. Let's make it a round number. More. Uh, a million. More. 1.5. He bought, yeah. Bruce bought his, yes, Bruce, a oh, Bristol, Bristol. So he bought, Bruce bought his house in 1992 for 115,000. They've now gone on to sell it for 1.1 million pounds. Bruce goes on to say. Sure, his surname isn't Blair. Yeah, <laughs> Bruce goes on to say, as Del Boy said, I'm now a millionaire. <laughs> Mm. But then where do you live there, Bruce? Because if you've sold your house for a million pounds, I assume you live somewhere. So you've you've got equity. What did you do? Mm. Did you downsize? I'm fascinated. I want to know where Bruce lives and what did you do next, Bruce? You know what? I I really don't want to insult your views. (laughs) Sorry, Bruce. I I don't want to offend your viewers. But what I find a bit strange about this is at the beginning of that segment about housing, people were saying... Oh, you just get given a house. You don't work for it. You're lazy. You get given a house. But he hasn't worked for it. He just got lucky. He just bought a house 30 years ago and then just sat there while it accumulated in value. And now he's a millionaire. He didn't do any work for that. And neither did the other person whose house went for 400,000. I find that 
So it's this is the biggest false example of social mobility in history. Just by sitting there, people who bought their houses for absolutely nothing have entered the elite, or at least financially have been able to enter well, the no elite. Well, no wonder people I, want to get on that I don't mind about insulting the viewers, Bruce. You and me, outside. I want to talk. I, want to, I just want to talk. You know, it'll be nice and friendly. But honestly, you know, it's it, to, to, to sit here and to hear so many people saying, oh, it's all about hard work and graft, that's exactly the point. That Eli's just said, it's not. You've just lived in the house, not sold it. Fantastic. Everything's wonderful for you. But then they, they would argue, because I've seen a few emails, and I'm going to... If you've got one of these stories, by the way, tell me about it, because I need to find one. One just came in a second ago, as I was listening to Ellie a moment ago, saying that actually, yes, they bought their house many years ago, and yes, it's gone up in value, but what they were saying is that in order to buy it in the first place, mm-hmm. they had to work three different jobs, do X, Y, Z, A, B, and C, to try and get onto the ladder in the first place. But lots of people do that already right now, and it is mm. impossible. And they're only, as Ellie... Ellie, um, oh, sorry, Molly May, not Ellie May. Molly May would say there's only, so many, so, only so many day, hours in the day. Molly, this is Molly this May. is a cultural reference. Molly May from uh, no, Love Island. Love Island. Right. This is going back a bit. You know, it's okay. Um, but you know, but we need to go back to the the other topic, which is meritocracy. And you know, Catherine Verbalsing saying that people should only sort of aim in incrementally. Well, if you're a young person growing up, whatever class, you know, your lower class, working class, sorry, or middle class, and you can see people all around you who haven't actually put in the greatest amount of work all due respect, uh, in terms of managing to create wealth by just having houses. And you're then told, oh, it's just got to be small int- incremental steps. Maybe just focus on getting your GCSEs first. Don't actually aim for Oxbridge. What on earth kind of a message is that, actually, realistically? If you're just kind of being told, you know, just make small goals every day and that's fantastic. No, actually, I'm of completely the opposite perspective. People should aim for the moon. They should be, you know, incredibly mm-hmm. cautious about, for example, uh, going to university just for the sake of university and getting themselves into a huge amount of debt to study, I don't know, a- a- English uh, Anglia Ruskin University, which isn't perhaps in everybody's best interest. But why can't working class children aim for Oxbridge or Manchester or St Andrews or anything like that? I think they should absolutely be pushed. And even if they fail, they should be pushed to then try again. Yes, I don't like this idea. I understand that not everybody can do it, but everybody should be encouraged yes. to perform to the best of their ability. And this idea of just saying that there are spots in life and you'll only get so far, that's damaging. I need to go to a break in a second. And before I do, I want to read you David's email. David is from Pontefract in Yorkshire. And, David, I think you have said something that I was thinking when I was hearing these guys. I think it's very, very good. Michelle, why is there such snobbery around being working class? The happiest people I know are working class. They've got plenty of money, despite what we're led to believe. The miserable people that I know and the ones with constant money worries are always middle class in my experience. David, to me, I really kind of resonate with what you're saying there because there is this constant kind of almost looking down on uh, the working class, whereas pretty much every single working class member that I know is what I would call salt of the earth, good decent people and a lot of people that I know that are what some might say upper middle upper middle class they could learn a thing or two that is for sure from many working class people but I'll leave you to ponder on that we're going to take a break when we come back I want to talk to you about strikes we're about to have the biggest strike since the 80s what do you think to this should anyone be able to strike anytime any place anywhere we already have rules but do they go far enough we'll be looking at that after the break Coming up on Dan Wilson tonight, after Muslim protesters kick up such a fuss over the new film The Lady of Heaven, it's been cancelled across the UK, were Cineworld right to cave in? Get ready for a lively debate in The Clash. 
Plus, political firebrand Anne Whittacombe and the Daily Telegraph star columnist Celia Walden sound off on the issues that matter to you. And I'll break down the headlines of the day with my superstar panel. Conservative commentator Dominique Samuels, former Tory London mayoral candidate Sean Bailey, and author and broadcaster Amy Nicole. That's Dan Wooten tonight, Monday to Thursday, from 9pm till 11pm on GB News. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubilee. Just a quick reminder as to who is keeping me company tonight. We've got Victoria Borwick, who's the former Deputy Mayor of London, to Boris Johnson, journalist Benedict Spence, and Ellie May O'Hagan, who's the Director of the Centre for Labour and Social Studies. I've asked for your thoughts, and you are giving them to me in your droves. Lots of you getting in contact. You're merely wanting to talk about property tonight. It really is uh, the thing that's got you going. Uh, lots of different feelings and sentiments coming in. Um, Michelle, your panel are clueless. It means you three. You didn't say mm-hmm. me, you said you three. <laughs> Michelle, your panel are clueless. To buy a house in 1992 for 115000 means that their mortgage would have been close to £1,400 a month. They must have worked their socks off to mm. be where they are now. In capitals, they are not lucky. Life is all about choices. And if you make good choices, you prosper. If you make bad choices, you don't. That says Les. There you go. Um, right, uh, I'll, I'll leave it. Get on the housing ladder. Pardon? That's why I think people want to get on the housing ladder because they have seen what their aunts, uncles, other members of their family have done. This is why people, I think, want that opportunity. My parents, Jubes, both worked at a hospital. My mum and my dad at night. They never saw each other all week. They were exhausted at the weekends. We were lucky. My grandma was alive to look after us. Nine of us. Nine, nine. Nine of you were fed on one pot of food, she says, but it was also my parents could buy their own house. Mm. Yes, buying your own home is an aim, but what many seem to be forgetting is that it requires sacrifices. And if you're not prepared to do that, then there you go. Benedict is about to spontaneously combust alongside me, so I'm going to spare his, spare his rage and I'll move on and talk about, <laughs> I'll talk about rail strikes instead, I think. Um, there are three days of national rail strikes planned for later this month. The RMT Union wants a pay deal and a guarantee of no compulsory redundancies. Uh, what this means is the country's entire network could grind to a halt. So if you're wanting to get to, I don't know, say Glastonbury or some of the cricket things, you could find yourself affected. Ellie, shall I start with you on this one? Where do you stand for the striking? Well, it won't surprise you to know that I'm in support of strikes. I think that it's a basic right that all people have um, a bit to uh, it's freedom of expression mm-hmm. and freedom of assembly. So that, you know, when an employer is doing something that isn't fair, and I think that um, taking away people's jobs and giving people effectively a real terms pay cut in the middle of a cost of living crisis. I don't think that is fair, especially when, you know, a lot of these rail companies are making quite substantial profits. I think the, the workers are well within their rights to withdraw their labor and to make their feelings known. And I also think, you know, we were talking earlier about how work doesn't pay. Wages are just too low. So I think if more people were to join a union and to organise, you might actually see wages increasing across the economy. And you can see when you look at what's happened to this country over the last 30 years, you can see that as trade unionism has declined, 
inequality has gone up. So I support the strikes. And, you know, if any of your viewers uh, want to join a union, I would encourage that and um, so that they too can defend their pay and conditions. When... I, think, I think workers coming together and protecting their jobs and protecting their conditions, I think, can actually create really real change. I'm going to come to you next, Victoria. And as I do, I'll put on the screen for those of you that are watching and not listening, just a, a little map that will show to you uh, some of the areas, routes, etc., that will be affected by some of this strike action. Now, if, as I said, if you're, if you're watching this, you will see. If you're listening to this, I'll summarise it. It's pretty much the whole country. Um, Victoria, you used to be the Deputy Mayor of London. I mean, transports uh, across London, all the rest of it. When you stop this, when you reduce it, you literally affect your every man. So people mm-hmm. will be sitting there going, well, that's great. You know, you know, your workers might want more money, your train drivers, your real uh, network riders, whatever. Why should I be stopped from going to work to help you achieve your aim? What do you think? Well, I have to say that I absolutely agree with Ellie May that in this country... We believe in having the right to strike because wouldn't it be an awful country if we w- didn't have that freedom? So I absolutely concur there. But that's where I di- from then on I disagree because I do not think that the union should be able to bring the whole rail system of this country to a halt. And I think the important thing is that we should sit down and mediate it. Yes, um, fortunately, the people in, in work are very fortunate and people need to be able to get to work. We just talked about the cost of living. We just talked about the difficulties that people are having. People must have that right of freedom of movement and that for some people is working and that for some people is doing other things. So I, I, I agree that people should have the right to strike, but I do not believe the union should have the power to bring the entire rail network to a standstill. So what would you do then? Would you have like, um, like a basic skeleton service that was forced to operate <coughs> during the strike? Action, well, during the Olympics, there was an additional fee paid so that everything continued to run. There must be other ways around. There must be some other compromise, some mediated solution where people can all get round the table and actually, more importantly, listen to each other and communicate and agree a way forward here. I, I believe there's many different ways of solving disputes and certainly I don't think a strike is necessarily the right way forward. Benedict? Uh, I thought you wanted to calm me down a little bit. Oh, wasn't gosh, bad I'm going to set you off. The <laughs> first day of the strike is uh, June 21st. Yes. So, yeah, um, I'm supposed to be going on holiday that day, so um, I haven't been aboard in a while. Hey, so, uh, because my viewers, will be going, <laughs> what, my viewers will be saying, what are you doing going on holiday if you're desperate to get a house? Why are you saving all your money? Oh, because there are cheap package holidays, and sometimes you need to alleviate the stress that's built up by the fact that you can't afford a house <laughs> by going somewhere that's a little bit sunny. I'd love to stay here, but it's been raining for the last couple of weeks, and it's probably going to stay raining uh, for the next few weeks more. Look. Look, I think ultimately I agree that uh, they should be able to strike. They must be able to strike. Uh, but the problem that I have with a lot of this is, and this might sound a bit strange coming from a uh, conservative, a railway is a natural monopoly. And actually, you can't really have fair competition there. And I don't understand, therefore, why our railways are in private hands. I think that they should be in public ownership. I think they're one of the few things, actually, that should absolutely be untouchable by uh, private corporation because they do provide a very vital uh, transport link for people who can't afford a car, can't get a car, or for whom that's not You're practical. You're sounding less and less like a Tory. No, I'm sounding, I'm sounding like a conservative.
Conservative. I'm just not interested in profit at all costs, which I'm afraid is one of the major failings of the Conservative Party in recent years. I know a lot of people love Margaret Thatcher, but she was not perfect, and a lot of Conservatives would agree. And the key thing, I think, then, is if you bring that into public ownership, you should have a bit like uh, MPs have. You should have an independent body, actually, that assesses uh, jobs that are within the public sphere and therefore set the pay. And I think when you sign up to that deal, when you decide you're going to work in the rail industry, I think you sign up to those terms and conditions. And I think that that would be a much fairer way of doing it. Well, I can tell you what, Benedict, I'm going to give you a moment to calm yourself down after we've riled you up tonight, because that is pretty much all we have got time for. I've enjoyed the conversation. <laughs> Lots of you still, still telling me your stories about your uh, properties. Many people getting in touch saying, hang on a second, Michelle, all this talk about striking and pay rising, etc. What do train riders, train drivers, etc. And it's way above the average wage. Yes, it is indeed. But many people that are doing those jobs will say it's simply not enough. Some people saying about class, saying Tom says for him there is no such thing as a true class system anymore. Well, I'll leave you to ponder that one. But for now, thank you very much to my panel and thank you at home for your company this evening. Have a fantastic night and I'll see you tomorrow. Hello again, I'm Aidan McGiven from the Met Office. The cloud and rain that we've seen in the west through Thursday will work east overnight, but break up to clear spells and just a few showers. However, the main theme over the next couple of days will be the wind. An unusually deep area of low pressure for early June is approaching the northwest of Scotland. It's expected to give widely strong winds during Friday and Saturday, and in some exposed spots, the risk of gales. But uh, although it will be a breezy night, well, by the early hours of Friday, I think we'll see increasingly broken cloud, clear spells, still one or two showers towards the south and the far northwest, but in between, under those clear skies, temperatures falling, not as far as they would if we didn't have the breeze, however, so still the teens for many as we start off Friday, a mild start, 16 in London, 13 across parts of Scotland and Northern Ireland. And then a bright start for many, but the cloud will quickly build. We'll see a few showers developing over Wales, Western and Northern England. But the most showery weather will affect Scotland and Northern Ireland. Frequent and heavy downpours here brought in on a strong wind. Coastal gales for Western Scotland, 14 Celsius in Stornoway. More like 24 Celsius for London, where the wind won't be as strong. And we'll see plenty of sunny spells in between the cloudier conditions. Cloud does thin and break overnight, leading to clear spells for eastern and southern England. But for Wales, for northern England, as well as Scotland and Northern Ireland, we keep the cloud and some more prolonged rain coming in for western Scotland on that strong wind. Because, of course, it will be a blustery night again, those temperatures will hold up once more by dawn on Saturday. It's not a cold, cold start to the weekend, 13 or 14 Celsius for many. The cloud quickly builds on Saturday morning. We'll see further showers for many. One or two reaching the far south of England, but the most showery weather will be towards the north and northwest, with again that blustery wind over hills and exposed coasts. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Cur the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time.